Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. There is a time and a place for collaboration and synergy. And then there's also a time and a place for absolute decision-making. So I don't want everyone to think that it's you know, always kumbaya and and everyone's like holding hands in the airplane. There is a time and a place for that decisive decision-making and then for that, that collaborative teammate. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. In the two minutes it takes me to read this introduction, 120 flights will have taken off at airports around the world. That's one per second, 120 flights in two minutes. And by the end of today, planes will have transported more than 2 million people. That's roughly the population of Houston, or if you're over here in Europe, Brussels. And more importantly, those 2 million people are arriving safely. And it's never been a safer time to fly, if you look at research from MIT, which puts your odds of being in a flight accident at literally under one in a million. And of course, we've heard the research which was done at Harvard, flying is much safer than driving your car. So what am I talking about? What is the connection between flying planes safely and power, influence, and leadership, which is the subject of this podcast? Today, I'm extremely honored to discuss this topic with a true expert. Tennille Cromwell is chief pilot of airborne customer support with an elite private aircraft manufacturer, and who prior to her 15 years in her current role, started her aviation career in the U.S. Navy, where she served close to a decade as a mission commander and instructor pilot. Landing safely is something many of us take for granted, those of us who fly a lot, Uh, but when you really think about it, we put immense trust, massive trust in the airplane, the airline, the crew, and the pilot every time you step on board. So buckle up here. As they say, put your tray tables in the upright position. Tennille is going to share four lessons we can learn from pilots, how they're trained, how they navigate each flight, how they lead. You're not only going to feel safer when you fly, but you're going to pick up 
valuable and practical lessons from pilots that will make you a more effective leader. Tennille Cromwell flies the G-150, G-350, G-450, and G-550, manages 17 pilots and seven aircraft that are continuously operating around the world to serve their customers. In addition to serving her country in the Navy as mission commander and instructor pilot uh, for military aviators, she earned her bachelor's degree in business with an emphasis in entrepreneurship from the University of Southern California, MBA from Georgia Southern University, and executive education certificates in public leadership from Harvard's Kennedy School, and in corporate innovation with Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Tennille lives in Savannah, Georgia, the States, with her husband and three children. And on a personal note, I, I've known Tennille, and the genesis of this podcast came from some amazing conversations we had where I learned a lot of what pilots do. I just got back myself from the States and was down in Florida, a visit to the Kennedy Space Center, where it was great again to be inspired by America's history in flight and space. I cannot do John F. Kennedy's accent, but his words, do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So I've been looking forward forever to this interview because of Tennille's unique experience in the aviation field, both as pilot and business leader, and how those insights can help those in the audience become more effective leaders. Tennille, probably more than two minutes, so we're talking like 180 planes that have taken off. I'm so excited. Welcome and thank you for joining me on 97% Effective. You bet. I'm so excited to be here. Okay. Bing, right? We are free now to move about the cabin. The backstory, um, and I think this goes way back, way back to how you became a pilot, but how did you get into aviation and become chief pilot? So I'm super fortunate that I come from a long line of pilots. My grandfather was a pilot. My dad's a pilot. My uncle's a pilot. My brother's a pilot. So I was exposed to it early on, but I, I attribute all of my love for aviation to my grandpa. Well, my grandpa retired from the airlines when he was 60, but at 69, he decided he wanted to get his instructor rating and teach my brother and myself how to fly. So I think it's pretty neat that my grandpa... Just when he taught my brother, I felt like my brother learned how to ride a bike first, so it would be my turn to learn how to fly second. And so at 16, he started teaching me and invested 100%. I soloed when I was 17, and that moment was the light bulb moment when I was flying alone in the airplane by myself. I knew that this is what I wanted to do forever. Now, I'm not saying that my family, not that they didn't support it, they just didn't believe it. They thought I was just doing it because that's what everyone else did. But when I was ready to graduate from high school, I applied for ROTC scholarships. And it's funny, I received the Navy ROTC scholarship this a long time ago before cell phones and email in the mail. And it said, hey, we'll pay for your school, but you have to go to USC and you can major in whatever you want. And I said, that sounds great. I signed the paperwork in my car. I threw it in the mailbox. I went to work, and from the landline, I called my parents, and I said, Mom and Dad, college is on me, and I'm joining the Navy. So and their, response? their response was, <laughs> well, well, there was no turning back. <laughs> so they didn't get a whole lot to, to weigh in on it. They, they knew that was what I wanted to do, but it was just nice to kind of be in the driver's seat for the, for the next four years. Uh, but being at, at USC, having the luxury to major in whatever I wanted was awesome. Uh, because of the ROTC influence, I had to have a lot of math and science courses. So I do have a Bachelor of Science in business, which is kind of unusual. Um, but 
and you'll laugh at this. So I loved learning about leadership and the study of leadership. And as I evolved in the military, I could always place my finger on a good leader or a bad leader. But the reasons why kind of always intrigued me. It was much easier to put your finger on why someone was maybe a bad leader versus a good leader. And so that kind of sparked my love of learning about leadership and why my professional education has really stemmed from uh, from a leadership perspective, just because I think it's so unique. And so you got to do those both things. You got to right. fly, which is your first love, and then this study of leadership and business. I was going to ask, why did you go into business and MBA when you could have done any of the STEM fields, it sounds like? Right. I, I just think the, the variety of, of, of thought, and there were a variety of aspects. My husband is, a, is an engineer, and we've taken very similar courses in our professional degrees. And it's amazing how differently engineers look at it versus someone with maybe more of a business mind. And we end up getting to the same resultant, but for me, it's a much more elegant way. And for him, it is too. So I just think it, it was a more natural alignment with my way of thinking. And I think this is going to be a theme in the podcast, which is, you know, the very different perspectives. As I mentioned in the introduction, you talking a lot about how pilots are trained when potential danger comes, the, the things that they've got to think about. I found that really insightful. You found it kind of second nature. And, and so we had talked about this. And, and as we did, so let's distill a couple of the lessons from you being a pilot, being a chief pilot, and, and running a team, and talk about how those, to the point, make flying very safe today, and what those can tell us about leadership. To start first for context, yeah, you know, we use the simple definition of a, of a leader is someone who directs, motivates, inspires a group of people or an individual to accomplish a certain goal. What is the role or job of, of, a, of a pilot or a chief pilot? It, for me, I'd say it's varied, but my number one thing is taking care of my team. I'm super fortunate in having a bunch of pilots work for me. They're very professional, very skilled at what they do, but they still need help. And sometimes like a third party who's not engrossed in the scenario to look at it um, and, and give them, whether it be suggestions, resources, alternatives, um, that's, that's the biggest portion of my job. I also obviously get to fly quite a bit and I feel like the relationship and the rapport that I have with the pilots in the cockpit is very different from in the office. And so when you really need to get down to whether it be culture solutions or those type of conversations, those clearly happen better in a cockpit. Mm. Um, cause kind of the, the rank, if you will, is off the shoulders. Um, but, but really my, my goal, my job is a pathway clear. Hmm. Pathway clear. And then when you get onto a plane, because you fly a lot also as part of your job, and you're the pilot of that plane, mm -hmm. is the job simply to get everyone where they need to go? Or is there another part of that mission that's central to what the pilot's job is on that flight? Well, it, it depends on the mission, but so much of it, and I find that Oftentimes my job is to say no, which sounds really unusual because it's easy to say yes, right? But but it's it's being professional enough to know when a situation is either unsafe or not correct 
and no, we can't do that. Whether the weather is bad, we can't get into that airfield, but there's always an alternative solution. So it's finding that compromise solution that works for everyone, whether it needed, whether it's for the passenger or the, the parts that we have in the plane, either way that we can find that commonality and it might not be exactly the perfect solution, mm. but it's still safe. Let's talk about these four lessons and you have many more, but for, for the sake of our podcast here, you distilled down to, to four. Lesson number one from pilots is communication is, is the key to a successful flight. S- say more about this. You bet. So there's in aviation, there's this term that we call CRM, which stands for crew resource management. And it seems basic, uh, but it's really all about communication. And I'll give you an example. So I was flying back in the military and the gentleman I was flying with was not very kind to me. And it could have very easily built a barrier that I didn't want to communicate with him. And we received a clearance from the air traffic controllers and he read it back incorrectly. And because of the rapport that we had, I could have very likely crossed my arms and said, I don't want to help you. But the success of the flight depends on the two of us. So that's where you have to find a way to correct and make sure that we get the correct clearance instead of wanting to hold a grudge or have it be personal. And so that that crew resource management, you almost take the person out of the equation and you're a crew. And even if personalities differ, because you obviously can't pick always who you fly with, if personalities differ, you're still a crew. You're still a solid unit together to accomplish a mission safely. And I've always found that super helpful, even in a business setting, is kind of removing the person. Because if you take that that personality piece aside and you look at what everyone's trying to accomplish, then then you you eradicate the feelings or the the hurt feelings or maybe some of the challenges with the relationship and kind of work towards that goal. But that's um, that's one example of communication. But you also have different parties, and this is no different from business when you have internal or external customers. You know, you have air traffic control, which expects super concise communication. They don't want to hear about everything going on and the temperature in the cockpit and what y'all are talking about. They just want very succinct um, conversations. And, and so it really lends itself to, to tailoring your communication with whether it be to your crew or it be to your passengers or it be to the air traffic control, uh, which I think lends itself to, you know, a, a universal commonality amongst aviation and, and the business world. In that example you just gave where you're depersonalizing it and taking the emotion out of it, easy to say, often very hard to do. Is there kind of training you get on this? Not necessarily. I, I think it's it's the focus on the goal is the key, right? It's it's taking yourself out of the equation. And and like I said, like you said, it's easier said than done. Um, it it can take an extreme amount of maturity, which sometimes it, we don't always want to exhibit. But it's when safety's at stake, it makes it a lot easier too. Mm. And these principles, I think it's always interesting. I'll make the reflection that, you know, in business, <laughs> there's really no training or certification that goes on, all due respect to, to MBAs, of which we are both. Right. But when you're a pilot, right, you're at least in 
what I have seen in kind of U.S. commercial, right, 1,500 flying hours. That's nine, week, nine weeks of continuous flight. So you are really <laughs> assessed, trained, monitored, given feedback on what you're doing. To this point around communication, is there a training that's, that's done in the, in the pilot training program? Are there things that you have to constantly remind even seasoned pilots or even yourself to do? I don't know that I'd say it's something that you have to do, but you can kind of critique and learn in that this, everyone hears that a specifically married couples is not what you say, it's how you say it. And you can get really quick feedback on if what you said was in the right manner or not. And again, I'll use another example. So air refueling, we did that in the military, two giant jets, 100 feet apart, and you're moving at 300 miles an hour. So if you're sitting next to a person, air refueling, and I yell at them, oh, you're too close, their reaction is going to be to jolt, make big corrections. But if I say really gently, hey, you're getting a little close, you may want to back up, the reaction is going to be vastly different. So sometimes you get that immediate correction um, in, in the moment, and that's kind of the reminder that, whoa, it's what I need to say or what I am saying can come across very differently. We get the luxury in a cockpit of having that immediate feedback loop uh, because you're sitting right there and where we, you don't necessarily have it in, in written or text communication, but right there, just the physical reaction to what someone says can startle you and make you realize that, Oh, wow, I didn't mean to communicate in that method. I think it's a really important visual <laughs> that executives have <laughs> of being close together in two major planes moving at 300 miles per hour. And if you say something the wrong way, the planes are going to collide. Because if you have that image in mind, you're probably more careful about how you communicate. Absolutely. But you can still convey the same thing. And so that's what I find so interesting that just, just the cho choice of tone, not even necessarily the words can yield a better output. So communication being a key, CRM, yep. and how you say it. Lesson number two, which you shared, was having a co-pilot and diversity of thought. What's going on here? Well, I'm fortunate that I've really only flown crew airplanes, and it, I wouldn't have it any other way, because you always have a backup. You always have someone there to support, but it lends itself too to that diversity of thought conversation. If whomever I'm flying with has a different background from mine, clearly my background is military, but there's lots of different ways to get into aviation and you learn lots of different methods for doing things. So that's the great thing about aviation is yes, we have a destination that we're trying to converge on, but there's lots of different ways you can get to that destination. And if you're receptive to that diversity of thought, I feel like it creates this really rich fabric of decision-making and um, can yield to a, a better resultant if, if that um, trust but that conversation is there. So, but the trust is a really key thing with that co-pilot. And, and I, you mentioned it earlier in, in the training. So that expectation, when I roll out to the plane with someone else, we can, you know, 
you do the pre-flight on the outside, I'll do the pre-flight on the inside, which is, you know, doing the walk around and then the internal checks on the system on the plane that we're not necessarily there for all of it together. But I trust that if I'm doing one, they're doing the other. Um, I have another good flying example is uh, we were flying into Bozeman at night and at night after towers close, pilots can control the airfield lighting through our radios. And of course, it, it's a classic scenario. It's night, it's thunderstorms, it's mountainous, it's all these things. And we go into the airport and we're descending and we can't see the runway. And we keep looking and we've turned the lights on and there's no runway there. So now we have to go around because we can't see the runway and need to figure out where to go again, night mountainous thunderstorms. And my co-pilot is working with air traffic control to find an airfield that we can go to. And I'm flying the airplane. I'm setting up holding patterns, making sure we stay clear of the thunderstorms. And it's that trust and that division of duties without that. It, I mean that it would be successful, but it was so effortless because I knew he was doing what he needed to do. And he knew I was doing what I needed to do. And, um, we ended up, the sheriff came and broke into the tower and turned on the lights and the Bozeman. So that was our solution. But, um, there, there were lots of others, but he was really upset that they, that they couldn't support us. So he went and made it happen. So this was kind of the alternative that you wouldn't have thought about, but because you two were trusting each other, you keeping in a holding pattern, the co-pilot discussing that alternative kind of emerged while you guys were holding fort. That's exactly it. And I had planned to just go somewhere else. And while he was working through all that, they came up with the other scenarios that resulted in less flying time and, you know, less fuel and everything else. So it was, it was a win-win, but by just having that trust and then communicating and getting everyone kind of on board together, we were able to resolve it uh, a lot more simply than what could have happened. And talking about trust, and, and you, you brought up the fact that you come from a military background, others or maybe your co-pilots don't and they come from a different area. Question I wanted to ask is, particularly with a military background, right, there's this huge, at least us civilians, right, oh, there's this chain of command, you get to be very careful how you talk, there's a power dynamic going on. And so I would imagine part of trust too is that if the co-pilot's seeing something, they can kind of call you out going back to your example at the very beginning <laughs> of mm -hmm. how you react or, hey, you're flying straight into something. How does that trust get built or that permission? Because at least the stuff I've seen, this is um, probably some of the early accidents in Korean air that was written about was the, the co-pilot was so scared because of power dynamics and hierarchy to say things, they kind of hinted, they didn't say it directly or crisply or concisely, and then boom, they were plowing into the side of a mountain. How does that trust and that ability to call each other out work with pilots? Yeah, that, we've come a long way in aviation. So for sure, what you're referencing, that, that hierarchy and that dynamic really hindered, I think, safety and communication. Um, the chain of command, I think, is important in the military. Um, in ground operations and structure and everything else. Uh, but when it comes to aviation, it really needs, everyone has a say. Um, and so it comes from culture. And, and I think that 
that that that culture, that tone, specifically for a flight, really gets established on the brief. And the the inclusion of the brief, whether it be with the flight attendant or with the other pilot, but that anyone has a right to speak up. And I think, again, we've come a long way. We have the luxury in aviation that oftentimes speaking up is due to safety concerns, whereas in, in the, the corporate structure, there might be things that people would see as improvements and may not feel like they have a solid platform to stand on because it's not safety related. Um, for me, I know that I'm in the airplane along with um, other folks. And so what I do or don't say has repercussions on all of us. Say more. There was something you referred to that I wasn't totally clear on. I think some of the audience may not be. You mentioned kind of the brief. And because yeah. this sounds very interesting, of uh, before you go on the plane, it sounds like there's something you're doing um, that sets the culture or the permission or what we're trying to do. What is that process? Because that actually seems very applicable. More people maybe should be doing this in companies in some contexts. It is very applicable, I think, for certain. It it's basically it's like the executive summary of the flight. So when you start a flight, whether it's depending on the crew, our crew makeup can be two pilots and a flight attendant or it might just be two pilots. And we establish the baseline. How long is the flight time? What's the weather like? Will there be turbulence so the flight attendant will know when to sit down? Will we need to deviate around thunderstorms? Could the flight be longer than we planned? Um, is there potential for us to not make it into the airfield because the weather's bad? And where will we divert? All those things kind of come into a conversation. Um, we talk about emergency scenarios, just quick, big picture. If these things happen, this is what we're going to do, um, specifically in the takeoff and landing regime. So we have kind of, we're all on the same page. And, and then that's the point where kind of everyone gets to chime in either ask questions or add or take away um, from what's being discussed. And then we're all on the same page. And that brief sets the tone um, of, of how inclusive the flight's going to be. And everyone's a little bit different in how they handle it. But I think, again, for the most part, aviation is really leaning more towards that, that um, collaborative type environment. But I'll also reference, though, too, and you and I have discussed this in the past, there is a time and a place for collaboration and synergy. And then there's also a time and a place for absolute decision making. And, you know, and that would come from an emergency scenario where it's not really a collaboration. It's a, these are the actions that we're going to do. And that's why we do all the training in the simulator from a pilot perspective so that we can quickly um, assess a situation and, and handle it. And we know we've seen it in the simulator before, but that oftentimes may not be a time where we get everyone on the same page. So I don't want everyone to think that it's, you know, always kumbaya and, <laughs> and everyone's like holding hands in the airplane. There is a time and a place for that decisive decision-making and then for that, that collaborative teammate. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. I love the idea of the brief, the executive summary, as you said, to connect it to you know, corporate uh, speak. And it very much brings up an idea that we have talked to. You call it scenario planning there or this idea in social sciences of a pre-mortem. 
predicting what may go wrong, having everyone who has different roles or sees from different ways to bring that in to avoid error. Well, and then a key piece though, too, as we're talking about the brief, I mean, oftentimes you have the brief, but then you need to have the debrief. And Mm. usually it's quite succinct, but if there are things that we could have done better at the end of the flight, we'll talk about that. Or if there are things that went great, we'll talk about that. Um, but it's a, it's a full circle approach. The brief starts it and the debrief really ends the, the flight. I know military fighter pilots have very long debriefs and it involves whiteboards and all sorts of things talking about their tactics. But, um, but even in corporate aviation, we still have the same thing. What could I have done better? And oftentimes it's either, it might be internalized with what I personally in flying could have done better, but you also can get feedback from others. So I guess we get good experience of giving constructive criticism if need be, and also receiving constructive criticism. So you've got a very structured, and there's a debrief after every flight as well. Absolutely. You talked about the collaborative part and the, hey, there's times to make the decision. Any particular example there where, you know, you during flight or things that you just go in and make the call as the leader? Yes. I haven't had too many actual emergency scenarios that should lend itself to how safe these planes are. Most things are very uh, solvable and there's so much redundancy in the airplane, but I did have a scenario. I was flying with one of my brand new pilots. We're up at, I don't know, 45,000 feet. Of course it's night and it's thunderstormy. I promise this is not always how scenarios happen, but it seems like it does. Night, thunderstormy. We've had a really long day. We're coming back from, back to Savannah from Seattle. Um, So it's about a, we flew out there five hours, four hour flight back. We're probably in the last hour of the flight and we get an enunciator in the cockpit and it lets us know that something is wrong with our cabin pressurization system. And just like in flying on the airliners, when they say, you know, if you get your oxygen mask, you know, put it down and this rarely happens, but we were in a scenario that the masks came down in the back. So we had a problem with our oxygen system and he said, let's put on our oxygen masks, which is a very conservative thing. Our problem could have been solved, but he, that was the most conservative approach. And I didn't want to belittle his thought process as being a new hire because he wanted to be very conservative. So we put on our oxygen masks, tried to manage the situation, and it quickly escalated into something where we needed to do what we call an emergency descent. And we needed to get down now because um, our cabin was overpressurizing which um, meant that our outflow valve was um, stuck, which the outflow valve lets the air come in and out of the, of the cockpit to maintain that pressurization. And at that point, I just told him, now you need to descend now. And it wasn't, it wasn't, let's try and fix it. And he did what he had been trained to do. And I coordinated with ATC. They did a beautiful job moving all the planes out of our way. Um, So it was a, a very good example of how all of these parties that are trained to do what they do, we hope we don't have to do them, but executed what needed to happen. But it wasn't a time for conversation because it was a very immediate action. And then we debriefed it afterwards (laughs) once we had the time to talk about it. And and there's that continual learning going on when you have time to talk about it. But in that moment, it's time to make a decision and do what you are trained to do in that situation. Right. Which which brings us to lesson number three. You've alluded now to it twice. (laughs) Navigating a thunderstorm. You bet. So we all can relate to the 
how impressive Mother Nature is. If you've ever been in or around a thunderstorm on the ground, in the air, they're magnificent um, and magnificent so that you'd like to stay away. But what you learn early on in aviation is there's four different ways to go around a thunderstorm. Ideally, you want to go around it, right? Because there's no sense in getting close to that lightning, the hail, everything that goes with it. So around it. Then your next scenario is under it, if you can, or I mean, over it, I'm sorry. So around, over, but lots of planes can't get up over. I mean, these these storms are building up to 50,000 plus feet high. Um, under is a next scenario. And then your last base scenario is through it. Um, and so when we would discuss it, it's a great analogy for life in general. If you have the luxury of being able to... Um, to go around a thunderstorm, if you have enough gas, if you have, you know, enough time, if you have all those things, that's a simple solution. But we don't always in the business world have all the time. We don't always have the extra fuel. We might be in more of a reactionary scenario. Um, and so, you know, that's where the over would be a way more direct route. Uh, but you might not, again, have the capability the airplane may not be able to do that. If it's a really small thunderstorm, no problem. Um, but if it's one of those big monsters, it's not going to happen. Um, then under is an option. It's not very fuel efficient. It's susceptible to lightning strikes. And, you know, sometimes that's the way you squeak into an airport that you're trying to get into. Um, and then the last resort is through. And I don't know that I would take that resort maybe ever. I'd find another airport to go to. Um, something else, but that's not really an acceptable solution because it is so dangerous. Um, but all of those different options present different dynamics. And if you have the resources available, whether it be in the business world or in the air, airplane, then you can find your solutions, but there's different levels of it. Hmm. Yeah. What strikes me is that often people get very kind of narrow thinking. There's only one or two options. And as soon as you said there's four ways, right, to go around it, starts to open up the solution space. But then thinking about what resources you actually have and can do it. So it's quite interesting. Is, is turning back a, an option or not really? Totally. No, <laughs> <Okay>. absolutely. Yes. <laughs> that, that would be your around if you realize I'm not going to have gas or I can't, I can't get through this. Mm. You bet. Or, or waiting on the ground until it passes. I mean, there's, <laughs> that's my favorite. And so lesson number four, which kind of brings this full circle to things that you have been saying, lesson number four, surrounding yourself with a good team. What we see in the movies, right, in Hollywood of pilots, a lot of this is, you know, Top Gun, Maverick, which is totally focused on, on the pilots. Maybe there's a little of instructor school or your mentor, but pretty much everyone else is left out of this. And it's this highly kind of macho ego competitive thing. Say more about lesson number four, surround yourself with a good team. Well, and you said it perfectly. I feel like pilots get all the glory, right? We're the ones that are manipulating the airplane. We're the ones who do the takeoff and the landing and it's, you know, fancy and, and, and fun and fast and super neat. But I'll equate it really our maintenance folks. I couldn't fly without a maintenance team. Our dispatch team who helps, you know, create the, the um, you know, arranges the fueling and everything on the ground when we get there, files the flight plans, all of those things are so important. So 
it's easy to take all the glory, but you wouldn't be who you are without that additional team. The most important part of acknowledging it is is that that genuine humility that I really couldn't do this without these people. And there's truth to that. It's not just saying those words. It's having that absolute belief. When I bring a plane back that's broken and I tell my maintenance team what needs to be fixed on it and it's fixed the next day, that's pretty impressive because I wouldn't have a resource to fly to accomplish my primary mission without everything that they just did after I went home and went to sleep. And and what I mean, forms does recognition take? take? I, you're chief pilot. You've called out the, the, the kind of maintenance crew. But what are some practical things that work in, in your field or the aviation field in terms of recognition? Yeah, I learned early on we had this one gentleman who was a retired Commodore, which is super high ranking in the military. And he knew that we were all working on Christmas day and he would call what we called our operational control center every Christmas and thank us for being there. Now this man had long since retired, but it was just his acknowledgement of knowing there were people keeping the country safe, doing our mission on Christmas day. And I took a lot of, um, stock in that. It meant a lot because it came from such an authentic place. And so even for me, uh, I will every Christmas, my, my, our mechanics, we have to have mechanics on site, even if there aren't planes flying, the plant is mainly shut down. No one's there, but those guys have to be there. And so we make dinner for them or Christmas lunch every year. It's those little acknowledgements that there are people there to support you. Maybe even if you're not, and maybe outside of that that normal scope. And so I think it's that genuineness, like you're not doing it because you want the recognition or the accolades, but you want people to know that you really appreciate what they do. Which makes me want to call out right now my amazing team and Chip Davis, who produces this podcast. He makes everything function so that we can have great conversations here. To go back to your point before around sometimes kind of there's the kumbaya, there's Sometimes this notion, right, that, uh, you know, we'll put up with errors or failure. You know, failure keeps happening. And imagine in yours, you know, big problems occur. How is it kind of towing the line there of having the camaraderie, but also kind of zero tolerance, I imagine, for repeated errors? You know, I learned um, a super valuable lesson in this. I had um, a pilot that I had hired that was clearly struggling. And my approach was to really figure out why he was having so many challenges. So I sent him back to training, made sure he flew with certain people. Um, I was doing everything I could to, to set him up for success until one of my pilots, she pulled me aside and she said, you are so focused on him. You are forgetting about the position you're putting the rest of us in flying with someone that we think is unsafe. And it was such a good eye opener because I so wanted to bring the straggler along to be with the team. And yet I had forgotten about the position that I'd put the team in to try and bring him along. Um, and so I think that was a super valuable lesson for me to, to look at both sides of the coin. Certainly you can bring someone along, but if you're putting everyone in a situation that's either dangerous or uncomfortable or, or is not repairable, then cut, cut ties. But I just, I loved how she just stopped me and said, you are 
basically misprioritizing all of us who work really hard for you and really like what you do, you're forgetting about all of us. And it was a, it was a really good eye opener that sometimes as the boss, yeah, you want everyone to get along, but you also need to make the right choice and the right decision for the team. Hard choices. Exactly. And I didn't want to make the unpopular decision for the one, mm-hmm. but I clearly made the unpopular decision for the bulk, which, which seems like such a misprioritization of, of roles and responsibilities. So thank goodness people are comfortable to speak up though, too. Yeah. And, and what did you do after she pointed this out? I expedited the, the process of performance improvement. So we had a, we had a process and we had benchmarks and I was, ex, I was extending the benchmarks to see if they could meet the benchmarks, um, to give them every opportunity. And I, I put it back within the scope of the benchmarks and he wasn't able to meet them. Hmm. So yeah, it's not all glory being a chief pilot. It's not all glory. It's not all glory, as you point out. And a really useful example, one that is very applicable to to leadership and the tough job of what leaders have to do. Four very applicable and very interesting lessons. I think this has been very thought-provoking to to think about those and apply those to leadership. I'm curious, when you've been in executive education, you've been out there talking to other leaders, you know, at Harvard, Stanford, what insights or is there one that kind of stands out to them? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's what we talked about early on with that crew resource management. There's so much and communication, there's so much assumption that you are either communicating, whether you're thinking about it or not transmitting, but knowing that in within a crew, and I say over communicate, but I don't mean it just to like transmit, but in a cockpit, I'm telling the other person what I'm planning to do. And I joke because when I was young, my mom couldn't wait for me to talk. And then once I started talking, I would tell you what I was going to do before I was doing it. I'd give you a play-by-play while I was doing it, and then I'd recap what I did. So she was really grateful that um, <laughs> that I could talk, and I was so communicative. But there's an element about that that's super helpful when it comes to flying, because just something as simple as putting the gear down, right? We don't land with the gear up. Um, but where I'm going to put the gear down is something. So I don't want my co-pilot to think that I've forgotten it. So, Hey, I'm going to put the gear down at the five mile point, or I'm going to put the gear down at this point so that they are still included in my internal thought process. Um, and, and I think with all the technology that we have and our, we are so constantly stimulated that I think that we we think that we're communicating maybe sometimes more than we are just because you think it doesn't mean the other people know it. And so I think that that lesson from being in a cockpit and wanting to share what I'm thinking, not because you don't think I know what I'm doing, but just because I want to bring you along, um, is such a simple, simple, um, task, but I think it really resonates because then it does, it brings that inclusiveness in. Yeah, over communicate, over communicate, but not just transmit. <laughs> right, over communicate, but not just transmit. Yeah, it feels like sometimes social media is a little bit of all just transmission and not a lot of communication. Separate, yes. totally separate. You said it topic. perfectly. <laughs> totally separate topic. Let's also talk about women in aviation. 
okay? I, I was actually try looking up the statistics, you know, about 6% I found of pilots worldwide are, are women. Interestingly, I saw India, it was kind of off the, not off the charts, let's not exaggerate things here. It uh, is. 15%, 15% <laughs> yeah. uh, are women, which was interesting in, in a country that ranks, I looked this one up too, 135 out of 147 on the World Economic Forum Forum for Gender Parity in the Workforce. Wow. So that study it kind of went on to actually share some other information that, that, that um, studies have shown that crash rates, because we've been talking about safety here, of women pilots were statistically much lower than for male pilots. Comments on gender in aviation, women in aviation that you want to add? Well, I my grandpa used to always say that he thought women were better instrument pilots because we were more patient in putting in inputs and instrument flying is very small inputs. Um, that's one of the best things about flying to me is you're flying an instrument approach and, you know, as 140, 150 miles an hour and you break out of the clouds at 200 feet above the ground and there's a runway. I mean, whoever came up with these systems, it's amazing. Um, but but I think the 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 bias, you know, my, what my grandpa was saying, even that bias there. I, I do. I think women are underrepresented. It's a it's a tough career field, not not physically at all, and certainly women are tough enough to do it from a, a toughness standpoint. I think the dynamic of being away from family or finding that support system to be able to do something where you're gone and. I fortunately have a great support system. We don't live anywhere near family. Um, but especially for like women with children, the mom guilt is real and, and it's figuring out how to manage it. I'm not saying that I don't have it. Um, but I think it's, I think it's almost a fear of what will my life look like if I choose to go down this path and I invest everything into it. And will I miss out on having a family or, um, having a spouse or what, whatever it is, because I'm so invested in this. And I think, you know, you can't have it all. You can sure try. Um, but I think some of that is a little bit of a barrier. I'm hoping that we change that. But it's certainly not a career field that's prohibitive to women because of the physicality. Initially, I think back in the day, people were worried about the physicality and specifically the way the planes are made now with the fly-by-wire. And we do a lot of testing on our planes from a human factors perspective to make sure that it's not something that you know is too powerful or too strong for a woman to um, power through whatever it might be, whether it be flight controls or rudder or... Um, but, but I do. I think it's definitely underrepresented. I'm hoping that we change it. The biggest way to change it though is in the, in the earlier years, you know, high school and junior high and middle school, because it takes so long to really develop the experience. I know you talked about the hours and I have over 7,000 flight hours, which is almost a year of my life has been airborne, um, which is crazy to think about it, but it takes a lot of time to build that experience. And there's no shortcut for experience. Um, there's, you, and I know a lot of people have read the Malcolm Gladwell book with outliers and it's that repetition and the, the exposure. So, um, yeah, I think that that it's just, but you kind of have to go all in and you have to go all in without the worry or the reservation of what things are going to look like on the other side. I always mm -hmm. tell the young women that I'm talking to or mentoring that you don't need to find a mentor that looks like you. 
And if you're waiting so long to find that mentor that looks like you, you might miss out on the opportunity. So find someone that wants to bring you along. And it's another interest. This might be a side, but this is another thing that I tell young women a lot of times is, you know, you'll be talking about a flight and guys won't say that they're having issues or they're having a hard time. Their egos are pretty strong and powerful. And a lot of women will internalize that and then make themselves feel like they're doing worse. But guys have same challenges too. Um, I I learned when I was studying uh, one of the courses in Harvard, I love interacting with pilots that have a self-deprecating sense of humor because it makes them relatable to me. So they say, oh yeah, I, I, I never do this well, or I'm, I got lucky this one time and it makes them relatable. And so I was like, well, that's how I want to act. And when I would do that, it would make me appear incapable. And so I quickly translated that, that I'm like, I don't want that self-deprecating sense of humor. I'm going to build myself up instead of bring myself down. Um, and I think that that's a really important um, method that you don't have to um, belittle your accomplishments or or your capability around others to try and fit in. Celebrate yourself. Mm. Yeah, no shortage of accomplishments um, that you have had. Seven thousand hours. Seven thousand yes. hours. And and what is? Uh, <laughs> I know we talked about this in the pre-show, but what is your favorite plane to fly? There's so many that are uh, that are listed that we're going to put in the show notes. It's impressive. But what is your favorite one? I know. I do. I have a lot of planes. And I say uh, I like whatever plane I'm flying. And it's like asking me to pick my favorite kid. So <laughs> it, each day it's different. <laughs> okay. But they've all been awesome. They've all been awesome. All I know is I want to kneel as my chief pilot and <laughs> her to have her co-pilot following many of the lessons that we have talked about. Tanil, fantastic conversation. Any Final comment or question I haven't asked that you'd like to address? I don't think so. I feel, I'm, I'm so excited that we got to have this conversation. I've been looking forward to it. So thank you. And thank you. How do people learn more about you and what you do or even have you speak about some of these lessons? I don't know. I, I'm, on, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me at tenille.cromwell at LinkedIn. And I probably need to leverage some social media so I can be acceptable. <laughs> Tennille, fa- fantastic conversation. We have landed the plane here, and so we are free to, to move about the country at this point. Very much appreciate you having you here. It was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose.
Parker, engineering your success.